On this episode of DLN Extend, we discuss the battle of the web browsers. Will one win or do they all lose? This episode of DLN Extend is brought to you by DigitalOcean and Bitwarden. Welcome to episode 75 of DLN Extend. DLN Extend is a community-powered podcast. We take conversations from the DLN community, from places like the DLN discourse forums, Telegram group, Discord server, and more. We also snag topics from around the network and give you our takes. We are once again down our gaming master, Matt, but I still have Nate, the open source extraordinaire. How are you doing? Great. You know, it's unfortunate when Matt is here, but he will still slip his game recommendation in throughout the week because it's just what he does. Yes, it is. <laughs> He's made it super clear that he has no qualms about making sure that game recommendation gets in somewhere, even if it's not on the show. It is true. But he'll be missed today because this would be a great topic for him. He would have definitely given his very held back opinion, I'm sure. <laughs> His restrained opinion. Yes, that is a great way to put it. There are some things that he would really like to say on some topics like this. Right. Nate and I get to hear it, but that doesn't make it into the show content. Sorry, guys. <laughs> yep. We gotta make sure we keep it good or whatever. Keep the sponsors happy and the show family friendly. Keep us monetizable. There we go. You've recently made some changes on your old looking new system. What was the change this time? Well, I was having some trouble with one of my fans. It started making noises and you know, it's a new system and it was a little bit odd. Now, because it's the size of the machine, I'm limited on what I can choose for fans, but it's a 20 by 20 millimeter fan. It was just making some rattling sounds, some buzzing. I had to like slap the case to get it to shut up. I'm sure you've experienced that once or twice in your uh, computer life. Oh, yes. Yeah. I replaced the fan with a Noxua, which is substantially quieter than this fan that was in there. Also, I noticed that it does seem to move more air than this fan as well. And looking at the structural differences between the two, the old fan has more blades with a lot less surface area, while the new Noxua has fewer blades but with a lot more surface area. They must have something worked out here on the speed of the fan along with the air movement so it doesn't make the sounds. Just to keep it in mind with fans, if you hear fans, what you're hearing are the vibrations of the eddy currents of the wind basically not doing any work, essentially. So fan noise is inefficiency. You're actually hearing that energy as opposed to the energy being transferred to air movement. A Noxua fan is better because it is quiet, and it's quiet because it's doing more work with less wasted energy in the process. So that does seem to make sense when you see the actual results. Yeah, there's a lot of science that goes into making a high-quality, performant fan. Noxua fans are definitely one of the best ones out there. They're popular in the build your own PC or upgrade your PC lines for a reason. I know I spent the extra money and got all Noctua fans for my current system and that was one of the reasons that I wanted to. Cool the system the most efficient way possible, though to be fair, in order to do that, using a water-cooled system would definitely aid in cooling it the most efficient way possible. I haven't felt comfortable doing that quite yet. So everything in there is just air related, but having high quality fans do make a difference. Now that doesn't mean you have to drop a ton of money on fans. You can slowly upgrade fans if you need to for a system. I actually ordered too many when I ordered the fans for this. So I actually have extra fans in my tech parts closet 
just in case anything happens, there's backup fans ready to go. Or when I build that living room system, if ever that does happen, I have fans ready to go in it. What's some other things that you've noticed after getting this new Noctua put in? I did notice that the cooling is a little more consistent. I used core control that was recommended by Matt. And I can actually watch the thermals on the computer. It does tend to stay cooler. And I think it's probably because the fan's moving more air at its low speed setting. I can't say for sure, but the temperature does tend to be a little bit cooler. So the CPU fan doesn't spin up quite as much as it did previously. Now that I have purchased this Noctua fan, I'm now thinking maybe I need to replace the CPU cooler as well to an Noctua low profile. I don't know yet. I mean, this is working, but golly, I mean, I really like the quietness of the Noctua. It's pretty darn impressive. It is nice to have a machine that isn't constantly noisy in the background and is efficient in cooling. Let's see. I'm trying to think of how many fans I have in my case. So on my CPU cooler, there are two fans. There's two radiators that come out of the top of my CPU cooler. It is not a low profile CPU cooler by any means. It's one of those fan based CPU coolers that can't go in a lot of cases just because it's so massive. I mean, this thing is an absolute beast. I've shared pictures of it in the past. I might have to go ahead and share a picture of it again in the discourse form just so you can see how monstrous this thing is. And then I have three 100 and 40 millimeter fans across the front of this case. Yes, I also have a full tower. It's a monster case. It has room for all kinds of fans. I have three fans in the front and then I have two 200 millimeter fans across the top of the case. I have it in a positive pressure setup to help prevent dust from settling on the components. As we've talked about before, I live in a really dusty environment and making sure that as little dust can settle as possible is really important for the longevity of the parts that I put in the system. Yeah, for sure. Probably being a dusty environment as well, you need to make extra certain using a more quality fan anyway. That's probably not a bad choice for your living room system or your main system. Just go with a higher quality fan for the longevity of the computer itself. Yeah, it's one of those situations where making sure that you have the money to put in better fans makes a difference in the overall longevity of a system. It's one of those places that we really shouldn't skimp on. Are there really good high quality fans at lower prices out there? Yes, but you definitely have to spend some more time looking for them. And in this case, I was spending enough time researching parts. I wanted to go with a well-known very reputable long-term fan maker and Noctua was just it. They make a great fan. I totally agree. It's not just hype. (laughs) So while things are a little quieter in my lab, I understand that some things are a little bit faster over in your neck of the woods or neck of the high desert. Yes. Unfortunately, this change is not Starlink. Starlink still isn't available in my area. And I just reached the point where I couldn't take it anymore. And my husband had been seeing this company all over the place doing internet installs, share the name with me. I looked up what their speeds were, what their cost was, and they were able to come in and change our internet around. So we've switched ISP providers. Essentially, it's the same type of internet. I have a tower on the roof and it has to 
direct line of sight communicate with another tower in the valley. They have five towers in my area, but because of different blockages, trees and that kind of stuff in the way, there is one tower that he said I had an amazing signal on, but there was just enough people on that one. He didn't want to put me on it. So the tower he connected me to, the signal is still really good, just not as powerful as the first one, but there was less people on it. So my internet would be consistently better. I know from my last ISP, he said that where they'd positioned my satellite, that was part of the reason I was having issues. And most of the time, my ping was sitting around 100 milliseconds. Sometimes I get down to 60, but really my ping was horrible. I begged that ISP for a year to come out and check the hardware. I couldn't get them out. We had done the show originally for 74 on Wednesday. We had some technical issues with Riverside and had totally bit ourselves in the butt by not having everyone do local recordings at the same time. Even during that recording on Wednesday that had issues, I also had ISP issues and the internet went down. It was just an absolute disaster. If you listen to the extras on 74 and Matt says that episode was cursed, there at times it was almost feeling like it. By the time all of us could get together again, to record episode 54 again. It was Saturday morning and we were in the introductions of that show just getting started once again and my internet crashed and that was really the last straw. I couldn't take it anymore between school (laughs) stuff going on, trying to get a show recorded. That was it. I was so done and I'd called them too when we were off air to say, hey, my internet's down again. Somebody please call me so we can figure out what's going on. Nobody called me at all that day. By that evening, I had the other place called. They came out on Monday, did the install. My ping was sitting somewhere around like 45 milliseconds, which was amazing compared to what I had before. So the speeds do matter, but if your ping is super slow, just getting websites to load properly is a mess. There are certain websites with the pings that I was having, like pine64.org. I could not get to load on my home computer at all because they would just time out. It wouldn't let me on to the pine64.org website. I haven't tried it with the new one. I really should before I run my mouth too much, but I went from 15 megabits per second down and three up to 20 down and four up. They do have one more package above this, which is 25 down and five up. I might be able to get a little bit better than that, but then I have to go with one of the business packages. And at this point, you're spending a lot of money and still not getting great speed. So it's trying to find that balance between getting speeds that work for our house to function, for us to be able to do the show and not be giving away a child in cost each month. Right. It's expensive. We run out of kids pretty quick if you keep paying by child. That can be pretty pricey. Exactly. (laughs) Well, I'm glad you have improved speeds. I guess let's see how it works out over time. Wednesday was kind of sad. Although I enjoyed the talk, it was time lost and it was just frustrating for everybody. Saturday, that was also kind of a kick in the teeth when, you know, I went down for you too. But I'm glad we got it done. I'm glad we got it out. And I thought it still turned out to be a great episode. Cursed or not, you know, it still made its debut. Finally. (laughs) Finally. (laughs) This episode of Deal and Extend is brought to you by DigitalOcean. 
DigitalOcean recently announced their new managed MongoDB service, which is a fully managed database as a service. With MongoDB, you can focus more on building scalable, high-performance apps and less on maintaining the database. Simply offload your MongoDB administration to DigitalOcean and let them handle the provisioning, managing, scaling, updates, backups, and security for your clusters. DigitalOcean built this service in partnership with MongoDB Inc. And together, they have ensured that you will get access to all the latest releases of MongoDB Document Database as they become available. As a listener of DLN Extend Podcast and a member of the DLN community, you can get started for free. Actually, better than free because DigitalOcean is giving you a $100 credit when you go to do.co slash DLN dash Mongo. Again, go to do.co slash DLN dash M-O-N-G-O and get started with your $100 free credit on DigitalOcean's new Manage MongoDB. We want to thank DigitalOcean for sponsoring this episode of DLN Extend. It almost seems right now that browsers in general are also cursed. We have so many out there. Most of them are based on the same technology, but there seems to be issues with every single one of them. And this is almost brought home by the conversation that was on Destination Linux during episode 243 and the conversation with John, who is the CEO of Vivaldi. So I didn't get the full conversation. I've sort of failed as a listener of Destination Linux. You know, the week kind of got away from me already. I've been frustrated with browsers now since about 2015. I would happily use pretty much any browser. But then about 2015 or so, it became such that a computer with 8 gig of RAM was not enough to have multiple tabs open. I started getting more and more frustrated just with browsers in general. I even went to a terminal-based browser just so I could have a lot of tabs open and not have the high memory footprint. That kind of became difficult for a lot of websites, obviously. Since about 2015, basically since like Chrome really started to bloat up. I've been pretty much all in on Firefox and it's been great for me. And even now, like when I use Firefox, it seems like it's pretty respectful of my memory usage. And Chrome seems to be a lot heavier on memory usage, but I also have used Falcon as well because of memory usage. It's kind of a battle. I realize that browsers are not just browsers anymore. They're almost like application frameworks for these web apps that exist out there on somebody else's computer. And so I get all that. I understand. Do they have to be so heavy on their memory usage? It doesn't seem like they really should be. And I know we've talked about in the past on hardware that four gigs for a computer that you're using, even if it's just browsing only doesn't seem to be quite enough. Eight seems to be that sweet spot to where you have enough RAM to do everything you need to and not worry about running out. Especially if you're one of those people like us who ends up with a ton of tabs open all the time. I know when I'm doing research or getting things set up for co-op or trying to get things set up for kids and all that kind of things I have. Hey, these are the tabs that I need for DLN related. Stuff. These are some of the tabs I need for other work-related stuff. These are tabs that are open for Tuesday co-op. These are tabs that are open for Thursday co-op. These are just extra interests over here on the side. And there are days that I end up with multiple Firefoxes because, you know, I have more than one screen. So sometimes you have Firefox <laughs> open on both monitors yep. at the exact same time, plus having multiple tabs on each one of those different iterations of the browser, it really starts to eat into the RAM really, really quickly. 
Then if you're dealing something that is chrome or based on chrome, that eats away at it so much faster. And I'm not sure the difference because I don't work on any of this stuff. I don't work on the back end of it. I am just a lowly user of these technologies. And I'm not sure what is causing that much heavier usage on a Chrome, Chrome-based browser where Firefox or Ghostry, which is built on Firefox, doesn't have those same overwhelming RAM iterations. At the same time, there are so many of these web-based applications that you can't use on Firefox. It tells you that it doesn't have the technology built into it to run certain parts of these web web-based applications. And it makes me think, are these extra technologies that are being run in the background eating so much more RAM? And because Firefox doesn't have them built in, that's why it is less resource heavy. There seems to be so much extra going on in a browser. You think a browser is just this simple, straightforward desktop application, and it doesn't seem to be that way anymore because even the internet isn't simple anymore. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I went to a news site this a while ago as an experiment. I wanted to see how much RAM it took up just to see like the front page of news, not even any details, just like their tiles of different posts, whatever, on the news site. One of the big three-letter guys, I'm not going to say who it is. And it took 700 megabytes just to see what really didn't take me long to read at all. I'm thinking to myself, megabyte per letter of information. What is going on here that it's taking so much memory just to display just some text? Is it all the graphics and the animation? What is there some other... JavaScript that's running in the background, come to find out it is the JavaScript. As I kind of move forward in my browser journey, as it were, I find like I have to run some sort of an ad blocker just to keep these things from just cropping up on my system, chopping up memory. I'm fine with advertising. I'm fine with like, you know, hey, you want to find out where I'm from roughly. I don't give away my street address. Find out I'm from Michigan. You want that IP information. I'm totally cool with that. That is just fine for the most part. But when you're like running scripts or whatever on my computer, I mean, are you mining Bitcoin? I'm wondering these things with my resources and it just it bothers me because it shouldn't take up that much RAM just to get a few lines of text on the screen. I don't fully blame the browsers necessarily in that regard, but still something has to be done to stop some of this garbage. And I find that a lot of these browsers, just, they make the web not fun. Like the web used to be a fun place. And in many respects, it's not really very much fun anymore. It's like going out of the house in the middle of winter. You know, you got to put on winter boots, your long underwear, you got to wear your thermal layers, you know, on top of your jeans because it's too cold. And then you have six layers on top with your marshmallow puff jacket just so you can go outside and not freeze. Oh, and make sure you have your electric vest as well. It's so cold, you don't want fingers going numb while you're outside. The browsers are maybe enabling bad web design or something like that that's causing them to be so heavy. I find that uh, Firefox tends to treat me better as well as have all the features. I did mention Falcon earlier. That's a really nice browser because it's very stripped down. It doesn't have a whole lot. There's no bells and whistles really inside of it, like at all. And it tends to be much more resource friendly. And that does run on the, I want to say it is the Blink Engine as well, is a Chromium-like browser. It feels a lot more removed. Maybe they're doing something different or maybe because it's just so limited, it just can't run some of these scripts in the background. I don't really know. I just know that it's not very much fun using the web like it once was. You really bring up a good point at Every single website you visit or just about every single website you visit wants so much information from you, whether that is extremely heavy ads that are loading on pages or services that they have running in the background to try and track where you've been, where you're going, all kinds of information like that. It definitely adds to the heaviness in general of using a browser. 
I know that Firefox and Ghostray both put on additional protections for those kind of things, which is nice and could be part of the reason why they run a little bit lighter in general when it comes to RAM. Websites themselves do have a role to play when it comes to loading time and heaviness and being able to have multiple tabs open because there is no reason that it should be one meg per letter on some text. You should be able to read what it is, have it load super fast, and not being worried about how much RAM it's taking up in your system. It shouldn't take up that much in general. I have been a Firefox user now for quite a while, but it does have some of its own issues and some of that could be the built-in protections. They have definitely been limiting some of the applications or the extensions that you can install on top of it. There has been some controversy going on with the theming inside Firefox itself as well, which has slowly caused a decline in users. On top of that, the dominance of the Chrome-based browser means there are less people checking to make sure that their websites load in Firefox. And that is one of the issues I've had. There's a reason why I have Firefox in here and Chromium installed because there are certain websites that I can't use on Firefox and things get even more limited when I'm using something like Ghostry. I absolutely love the Ghostry browser for the privacy side of it. But then it comes to, hey, I need to access this website or that website and I have to jump to a less privacy-focused browser in order to do that. Now, it could be the privacy settings and the website that I'm trying to go to. Both of those conflict, and so I'm not able to get onto that website. Some of it is web designers aren't caring to check to make sure they work on a Firefox. Along those same lines, then you go to a Chrome-based browser like Vivaldi. It was great to hear that interview on Destination Linux. Now, their code isn't open, as in, yes, you can read the code, all of it, you can make sure that they're not doing anything funny in the background. But at the same time, if you are a developer and look in that code, it's not open to use. So it's open to read, but not open to use. And this is probably one of those situations where our free software people would be like, see, this is why we use the term free software. It's open to read, but not open to use. And if you're a developer that then looks at that code and not even meaning to, you implement something that's like that or look somewhat like it at the time, you're basically setting yourself up for a potential lawsuit, which that makes me feel really icky and really, really uncomfortable. And so there is definitely a reason for people to be like, uh, I'm not so sure when it comes to things like that. And then you have web browsers like Brave. They are definitely saying that they're more on the privacy focus side, but decisions that they've made also make me feel really icky. Okay, you're pulling out the ads that were put there by the website, whichever companies they're working with, and you're putting in your own ads, and then you say you're quote unquote paying them for those ad spots. And just there's a lot of stuff in the back end and the conversations in the community that makes me go, I'm really not comfortable with that solution either, mainly because it doesn't seem to be implemented cleanly. It doesn't seem to be implemented in a way that feels fully truthful. Where do you go? Where do you have a browser that A, you can visit all the websites you want to, B, does an e your RAM like absolute crazy and C still protects your privacy? Uh, none because they all lose. There's none that actually can do all that, really give you everything. At this point still, I've tried Vivaldi 
I like it. It's come a long way since the first time I used it some four years ago, whatever. I like some little features on it. I don't know. I just happen to like the Firefox better. I like the totally open aspect of Firefox. I don't necessarily like everything Firefox does, but I'm generally happier with Firefox and how it runs and, and so forth. But really, to me, they all just kind of lose in the end because they're either too heavy or they're not fully compatible or they're too closed. So I don't know. I feel like they all just lose. Oh, we forgot about Edge. Actually, I do like Edge. Edge is actually probably my, right now, probably my second favorite browser after Firefox. It's very fast. So you're on the same bandwagon with Brandon on that route because he actually says that Edge really is good, which is a complete 360 from where they used to be 10 years ago, five years ago, two years ago. Yep. I guess I am. So I guess Brandon and I were like cousins once removed in that regard. But yeah, I think Edge has been great. Right now, my path is if I can't do it with Firefox, I'll go to Edge or sometimes Chromium. I'm back and forth. I feel like Edge is a little bit peppier than Chromium. I don't know why that is. I go back and forth from using the Snap to using native packages. I don't know. Edge has a nice theming to it automatically. Like Vivaldi has some really nice theming to it by default as Firefox does. And Chrome, Chromium, I feel like they're just not as good as far as theming goes. They should be the same, really, but they have just some weirdness about them. Again, that could be because the way I'm using it. I just happen to think that Edge is a really good contender too, but if only Microsoft would have used the Firefox engine instead, I probably would be using Edge full-time if Microsoft had done that. I'd feel better about the core of it, I guess, is really what it boils down to. Why do you think they went Chrome, Chromium over a Firefox space when Edge went from being its own independent browser in general to now basing off somebody else? Well, I think it's momentum. The problem that we had with Riverside and what was the other one that we used? Zencaster. Yes, is you couldn't use it with Firefox. So you think about these engineers that are making decisions... And they have the choice of this and we know can't do these certain things. And this and we know everybody's using and building against which one should we use. There you go. It's one of the lower technical liabilities to the it. The joke used to be you use Internet Explorer to install Chrome and that right. was it. That was the only time you started it up. Right, exactly. Just because Blink is on top right now doesn't mean it always will be. Technology is always shifting and changing. If there's something better that comes along, yeah, I don't see why it wouldn't happen. Blink, which is based on what WebKit, before that, that was based on KHTML. What I used with Conquer on KDE3 back some 20 years ago, almost 20 years ago, is really at the core of what's the most popular thing right now. And who would have thought that some obscure open source project is really what fired this whole thing forward? Yeah, it's kind of funny the way that works sometimes. How do we get Firefox more popular again? I'll be sharing a link to a article in the description that's really talking about the downfall of Firefox and how it's been losing so many users over the last 12 years, and they don't seem to be doing anything to come back from that. Even the CEO in passing has made a comment that essentially said, yeah, one day we're going to die. They are supposedly this open source, privacy-enjoying browser But when it comes to their VPN and other services that they provide, Linux is a second-class citizen. We get a lot of that stuff last, or it only comes to Ubuntu. It's not coming to any of the other distros out there. How do we rectify that? Or do we? Does somebody else pick up this project and have to run with it in order for a real free browser to take shape that isn't a Chrome base? 
Well, if the leadership's convinced that the project's going to die, then it probably is going to die, and that'd be unfortunate. So I'd say leadership is probably what needs to change. There's seemingly a lack of enthusiasm, if that's the case. And I think that Mozilla has done not the best job of focusing on their core competency. They have been, and I still think they are the best browser when you look at the big picture, its capabilities, its openness, and the plugins and so forth. But I think that they did lose a lot of user share by a lot of their decisions and so forth. And they probably just need to not comment on on things they don't have any business commenting on. Just focus on being the best browser. Just be an excellent browser. Do everything with absolute excellence. And I think that's the fix. That's how you get back to being on top or a serious contender is just being excellent. And I think they're just kind of missing the mark on that. They're not paying attention to that core competence. I hope and I wish that they refocus and they just do that. Don't get involved in anything else but being a good browser. Maybe focus on the privacy aspect of it, on their openness aspect of it. They could turn the ship around, but you can't be the captain of the ship and and say, we're going to be dead eventually. That's not going to instill confidence into the project. Do what you know you're good at. Support the community that's screams the loudest about how awesome Firefox is instead of giving them applications or updates last. That would be a good start. Make the open source community happy. You can't make everybody happy. We've definitely talked about that on multiple occasions. There is no one size fits all. But in general, if you have a group of people repeatedly saying, hey, stop doing that, it's not making it better. Or if we want Chrome, we'll grow to Chrome, be different, be Firefox, then maybe those voices need to be heard enthusiasm too. I mean, just being enthusiastic. If you have enough enthusiasm and you're on fire, some people at least just come to watch you burn. They need to be excited about their own product a lot more. I don't know what the correct course of action is. Maybe they're doing all the things I'm thinking of. Maybe they're looking at being more compatible with websites. Sometimes like a developer outreach. Are they doing that? I have no idea. I don't know anything about their internals of how they do conduct business. Are they acting like an island into themselves? In which case that is going to cause them to lose enthusiasm outside of their bubble. So I don't know. I think enthusiasm, more public outreach, focusing on the merits of Firefox. That's what needs to happen. Absolutely. Great points. Now it's time for the community to voice their opinions. Which browsers do you use? Do you think that there is one winning above the rest or do you think they're all losing? Make sure you're sharing your comments below the video on YouTube over on the discourse forum. There's some great chat over there on the different shows. You can also drop some lines in the Matrix group. I know Matt, Nate, and I hang out there quite a bit. This episode of DLN Extend is brought to you by Bitwarden. Bitwarden is the passive manager we use and trust. It's the easiest, safest way for individuals, teams, businesses, and organizations to store their passwords and other vital sensitive information. Bitwarden lets you choose the authentication to access your password manager, such as PIN, master password, and adding phrases or fingerprint security, all to keep your passwords safe. Go to bitwarden.com DLN to get started for free. Bitwarden is a password manager that I use and trust because Bitwarden is 100% open source. It has extensive security audits. It gives you the ability to self-host if you so choose. So go to bitwarden.com DLN to get started for free. It's only $10 for a premium account, which gives you one gigabyte of encrypted file storage, two-step login with YubiKey, U2F, Duo, Vault Health Reports, and more. Make the smart move like many from the community have and go to bitwarden.com DLN to get started for free. If you're like me, you'll want to show your appreciation by signing up for the Premium Edition, especially since the Premium Edition starts at only $10 annually. Bitwarden has saved me from getting into a serious jam numerous times. Now, you wouldn't be able to pry it from my cold, dead device. Thanks to Bitwarden for sponsoring this episode of DLN Extend. 
old tech is new tech to you. How was the Vintage Computer Festival? It sounded like a blast. I'm jealous I didn't get to go. I had more fun than I'd like to admit. I will anyway. It wasn't very far. It was about an hour and 20 minute drive from home. Not too bad, but it was in the Chicagoland area and I don't like traffic. Thankfully, it was on the outside of Chicago in Elmhurst. The uh, Vintage Computer Fest Midwest had some YouTube personalities there. Three that I ran into. The one I was real excited to go and see was the 8-bit guy, David Murray. He was there. He was selling copies of the game Petsky Robots. He also had his new but vintage-like computer, the Commander X-16, there on display for people to play that game on. That's a multi-episode topic in and of itself, but suffice to say, it's a computer with new parts, but you interact with like an old computer, if that makes any sense. Also, LGR, or Lazy Game Review, Clint was there. I didn't actually know he was going to be there. Pretty much next to 8-bit guy, he had his wood grain 486 there and some other really neat machines. Super personal guy. Just a regular dude, you know? I mean, I guess everyone's pretty much just a regular dude, really. I mean, we're all small people. I thought it was really cool. Somebody else that was there, this uh, Tex Alec, he does a lot of the circuit board designs that he works with the 8-bit guy quite a bit. He builds other different interesting boards for your old machines. And also another YouTuber I saw there, Nibbles and Bites. I don't recall her name. She does these tutorials on doing like assembly programming and whatnot on the Commodores. It was a neat event. It was like a swap meet, like all kinds of old things there. Just people like selling their wares. Some things less old than others. People selling some 32-bit netbooks I thought was kind of interesting for like 30, 40, 50 bucks each. What caught my eye was there was an Atari 400, which I've been wanting one for a little while now, just because I like how they look. Very sci-fi-ish from the 70s. Kind of looking at it, it looks like a flying saucer almost. Not really, but an angular flying saucer. It doesn't have a proper keyboard on it. It's got those membrane keys on it. Not really good for typing. I didn't buy it to type an essay on or anything. I just wanted to get one. I realized I don't have any software for it, and I kind of kicked myself for not buying the Epic Guy's Atari version of Petsky Robots. There you go. Nobody's perfect. And I also got an Aldi Commodore 64, so it's PAL. It's from Europe. Aldi sold them in their stores in the Isle of Random Things, sometimes called the Isle of Shame. And so now I have one of those too. It's a very light cream-colored computer with the keys and the keyboard. It looks low budget, and I think it's kind of fun how it looks. That sounds like an absolute blast. I still am so jealous that you got to go. 8-Bit Guy is probably one of my favorite old tech channels, and really it's watching him as he takes old things that weren't treated very good and renews them, refreshes them. And in the end, you have this once piece of history tech that was ready to just go into the dumpster. And now it's once again usable and you can type on it and it looks so good when he's done. He does an amazing job on that stuff. It's almost an art form. It's amazing what he's able to do, turn what looks like just garbage that even I might toss out into something that can be, I guess, loved again. In a way, it's kind of a strange passion because, you know, all these old machines eventually are just going to stop working eventually because nothing is forever. Keeping them alive as long as possible. There's something to that. You know, also at the Vintage Fest, there's a lot of like really old computers. My oldest, he got to see a computer that you actually fed data in it with a ticker tape, like punch tape. It was really neat. An old teletype. In Unix, I have the teletype sessions, the TTY sessions. Yes. Well, there's an old teletype there, but it was an actual teletype. So it had mechanical wheels and everything else inside of it. So when you'd send remote messages, it was all done electronically, you know, through whatever, it would receive them. It sounded like, it's really hard to describe, but like a factory almost, like the pounding of metal in the factory and the mechanics of it. I should have probably recorded some audio of it, but there's just too many people around and it was difficult for me to hang out there. My oldest, he really enjoyed it. He's the one that actually talked me into getting the Aldi 64. That's his now, I guess. But I got to wait for an adapter to adapt the PAL to HDMI because I can't run on my old NTSC monitors. It's just black and white, but it's fun. I'm glad I went. No regrets. I was probably there a total of three hours. That's about the extent of how I could handle, I guess, being in public, I guess. 
Yeah, people. I'd like to go to another fest like that, or even like a Linux fest. I've never been to a Linux fest before, and I'd really like to go to one of those. I think that'd be a lot of fun as well. Social gatherings are fun, if not a bit stressful, but I think they are fun. For introverts like us, it's a little bit of both. It's really nice to go get to meet some of these people that you see all the time, you talk to, you interact with them across the internet in different parts of the world. And at the same time, there's a limit to how much of people and crowds you can handle. I'm definitely that way myself. I don't go shopping in December pretty much at all. I get everything (laughs) I need to done in town before that because by the time December hits, there's way too many people in stores and I just can't handle it. I'm with you. I am totally with you. Speaking of things you can't handle, apparently we couldn't handle the issues we had at the last recording and we're experimenting with something else. Yes, we are experimenting with different recording technology. If you remember towards the beginning of the show, we talked about issues with Riverside that we've had. We've also had issues with Zencaster and both of these platforms that we were using for recording high quality recording are both pretty fairly expensive. Neither one of these are open and both of them require you to use a Chrome-based browser. There was some chat going on inside the Destination Linux creators group this last week and Brandon brought up this streaming service that I'd never heard of before and I decided I needed to check it out because it's based on open source technologies. So that's what we're actually using this week to record the show. It's called On Caster, and when I did some digging to try and figure out what that means, it's French for being bored or lethargic, one of those things, I found out really really funny that they called it that. But as you're digging through the facts and questions for this podcast recording service, there's so many things about it that made me laugh. They really have a great sense of humor and made me want to use this project even more on top of it. Now, they use Jitsi in the back end for this recording. Instead of getting a high quality WAV file, you can get a high quality FLAC file, which is really, really awesome. And even better, I actually find them to be one of the cheaper ways in order to do recording like this. So yes, you can meet on something else. You can meet straight up on Jitsi like the Destination Linux guys are doing. And then they're also recording locally. Then from there, those files are being sent to Michael through Wormhole, which if you haven't tried Wormhole yet, it's actually a really fun way to send files. Just FYI, side topic. Is that like Firefox Send? It's a lot like Firefox Send and in some ways like Bitwarden Send, but it is all browser-based. And of course, they're using the funny wormhole graphics on top of that. Another cool thing about that send feature is that as you're sending, the person who's receiving that file can download it already. So they don't have to wait till the file's 100% uploaded for them to start downloading it. It's got some really neat features. You can still set how many times that file can be accessed, how long it can be accessed. It's pretty cool. So if you haven't checked it out, really do go check out wormhole. So that's an option in order to get podcast files back and forth. One of the downsides of that is that's one more thing that your other co-hosts or your guests need to do at the end of a show 
is send those files over to you. Using a service like this, where you're all together, you can hear everybody. In some cases, you can see everybody. Once you're done, those files are uploaded to the host's profile, their account, and they can be downloaded directly from there. There's just one link where all of that is nice and clean. That sounds like a topic in and of itself that we should explore at some point, sharing files and whatnot. That sounds like a very interesting application that absolutely deserves some serious conversation. You're right. That is one of those things that we should spend some time sharing all of the different open options on how to get files back and forth to people. Great show. Maybe we should do that next week. And back to the discussion on on we. Not only is this one of the services where now the files are being synced, they're easy for the host to get to, they're easier for whoever is editing the show to get to. The other thing that's really cool about this one is you can also do video on top of it. Now, our podcast isn't typically video, though we do live stream sometimes. And even better, you can pop the video out of the recording itself. So you can use OBS to capture the video with the videos popped out so it can be set up on this really pretty scene like Michael likes to use and then send that stream to YouTube, Twitch, and Odyssey. Yes, we have an Odyssey page. Go check it out. It really seems to be ticking all of the boxes that I want from the other sources that we've been using and then hitting additional boxes as being open source software. You still have to pay for the service, but they also need to pay for the back end. That's just kind of the way that it works. It can't be free altogether or else you can't have a quality service. So yes, you are paying. If you want the FLAC files, you are paying $15 a month for the service, but really that's way cheaper than a lot of the options. And there's options that go up to a hundred bucks or more a month. Neither one of the services that we've used in the past that are proprietary have been that much. Thank goodness they just cost way too much for what they're offering. But you are going to have to pay some amount in order to make sure that those services on the back end are staying up and they're able to grow to accommodate the people that are using the service. Open source, still get to see everybody if you want to use video, get high quality FLAC files, reduce cost. I am all over this. We'll see how well this is working this week. So far, it seems to be working fantastic. I've been really, really happy with it so far. I would say some of it isn't as intuitive as, say, features that are built into Zencaster or Riverside, but Ennui is very open with the fact that they are still in beta right now. And while they are in beta, the service is free to use for testing. And if you decide you want to jump on, test the beta, use it yourself, they do have a discourse form so you can share feedback with them on what's going on, how you're using it, any issues you have, the things that you like about it. I will definitely be jumping on their discourse so I can talk to them a little bit about the UI setup a little bit. It took some time for me to figure out which link I needed to send to Nate so that we could both be on the same recording. Then figuring out where the record button is because it's not right out front like some of the others are. Overall, I have to say I'm really enjoying this service so far. If you do any audio recording with other people, I would highly recommend go checking it out, sending them some constructive feedback and helping us get another open source project that can be used in those professional manner. 
mean, personally, I, I like watching the waveform go by as we talk because I can see when I screwed up as far as like if I dropped something or I'm fidgeting with something. There is that. Were you not getting that <laughs> on Riverside? Did you not get to see the waveform very well? Nope. I didn't see anything on, on Riverside. I saw my meter. You saw your meter, but you didn't actually get to see the waveform itself. Right. Different views that you can even use inside of it, whether you're the host or somebody that's joining as part of a co-host, that kind of thing inside Ennui. It still takes me a little bit to say that. It's going to take me a while to remember how to pronounce that because my first language is not French. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what my first language is. I barely think English qualifies. My first language is Babel. We'd like to continue the discussion with you on Telegram, in Discourse, Mumble, or Discord. Visit the DLN website for information on how to connect to the social channels and all of our shows and creators at destinationlinux.network. If you'd like to hang out with us on our preferred social media, see the links in the bottom of the show description or drop us a message on the contact form by visiting dlnextend.com contact. Be sure to check out the DLN merch store. Grab yourself some awesome DLN Extend swag along with stuff from across the network. As always, we thank you for joining us. We'll be back next week with another awesome episode of DLN Extend. Until then, have a great week, everyone. On this episode of DLN Extend, we discuss what we see as problems with that's last week. I didn't think to change that. (laughs) (laughs) It's all good. All right, take one. First time. First time, every time. Another part of it could be I lost my reason three. I'm sure you'll find it. I'm sure I'll find it somewhere. (laughs) It's there. I know it's there. I know you can find it. Right? I have confidence. I have faith in you. Yeah, I'll probably remember it sometime down the road. Blah. I eventually ended that segment. Eventual ending? It was a slow crash, but at least we crashed it. (laughs) I was talking about my inability to get words out of my mouth. Words are hard. Words. Just words. Words are difficult. First try.